0: love is an ill-defined and ambiguous term it has endless meanings endless iterations of what it might mean all we would need to do is look at poetry or songs or fiction or love stories to see all the different iterations and attempts to explain what love is uh, it was the old McCartney song about, this is just another silly, what do we need with one more silly love song? And they keep writing them. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an example of the fact that we try to put our hands around something that's impossible to quantify. From the human level, we have this emotional thing that's completely mercurial and evaporative, and we have a rational component of love that's pretty bland, ethical, moral, And so when we talk about the love of God from Scripture and the love that he wants for us, we have to put on our thinking caps. We have to brush away some of the noise and feelings and presuppositions we might have about what love is and what it is not. God sanctioned it. God gives it. God grants it. God demonstrates his love and that Christ died for us. God is loving toward us while we're sinful, and on and on it goes. It's a major theme, certainly, within Scripture. In Philippians chapter 1, in verses 9 to 11, we have the end of this prayer. And these three verses, although short, uh, talk in some depth about love in a way that I think will be new for many of us. Let me read. You can follow along on the screen. And this I pray that your love may abound or grow. Some of your Bibles might use the word grow. It's a very good uh, alternative rendering. I pray that your love might abound still more and more in the real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Now, if you've been around uh, Christian circles, you've heard the word agape. If you've been in a church for more than 10, 15 years, you've heard that they use this word. Some churches are called agape churches. You have agape groups, um, and there's a lot said about this word agape. There are let's say, five or six terms in your New Testament. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, you might have read his book on the loves. And I think in the main, he's good, but I think he overreaches sometimes in his conclusions. But remember what I talked about the peanut and the trunk, Uh, word meaning is determined only by usage. Our baseline has to be how the Bible uses a term, not how we feel about a term, or how we use a term in our normal conversations, okay? So when we look at these terms, I'll take a little labor to try to encourage you not to just automatically run to what you think the word might mean. Often it's a sacrificial love. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten, his one of a kind, his mogul son. Well, that's sacrificial. Well, yes, but the love can mean other kinds of things besides just sacrificial love. In the New Testament, it is a profound term. It is precise in the way it's used. And what Paul's doing in, this, in these three verses is he's showing you and me no less than eight facets. If you were to read this quickly, you wouldn't see it. I didn't see it until I studied it in weeks past. There are eight terms that Paul is going to use here to talk about love in a very different way than you and I would think about love. I've underlined them on the slide. Knowledge. A discernment, approve, that will need some work to understand what he means. Excellent, blameless, righteous, glory, and praise. You know, those don't sound like love, right? Because we're coming at this with an idea of what love feels like or looks like or should look like if we watch too much Hallmark. This is what love is. You know, the Bible's saying there's an ethical, rational, biblical, theological side of love. Paul says, I want your love to grow. I want it to abound, and then he's going to talk about these facets or aspects of it knowledge, discernment, approval, excellence, blameless, righteous, glory, and praise. And we'll look at those at some detail. Notice none of them are feelings, none of them are talking about how we feel about something. I don't read or speak French other languages I labor with I don't know how to pronounce this gentleman's name he is a French lexicographer he is Catholic but he did a fabulous job on an article on agape and he wrote the meaning of life is a question of values and the ultimate moral value is love when talking about agape the meaning of life is a question of values isn't that true What do you value? When you look at the purpose and meaning of your life, it's what you value, what you put as important, what your goal, aspiration, dream, desire, what you value, that is determines your life. But he goes on to say, the ultimate moral value is love. And he's talking about the biblical term agape here. Very well said. Well, let's look at this one sentence in Greek, and let's look at these four aspects that Paul distills for you and me. This one sentence. The first is praying, number one, that their love may abound in knowledge and discernment or insight, that your love might abound. No doubt love is a primary quality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. No doubt that's why he came. He loved his father. He loved him to the point of death on a cross. He was obedient. I only do that which the father tells me to do. And so because of the love of the father, it compels him to come uh, John Walvoord says, it is the primary quality, then, of Christ-likeness. And we think of a few examples of this. In John chapter 13, 35, which we'll look at at the very end, we are known as Christ's disciples if we love one another. In Galatians 5, and 23, love is the prominent fruit. This is often talked about the fruits of the Spirit. Technical error. There's only one fruit. It's not a plural word. It's plural in nature, not in, and not in fruits. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And I argue that all the others are explanations of love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Love is the predominant change of a person's life when he or she knows Christ. It's the fruit of God's Spirit working in us. We were once at odds. We were once enemies. Now we're loving. There's been a transformation. And in 1 Corinthians 13, one corinthians 1 to three, many of you probably use this passage in your wedding ceremonies. The greatest of these is love. The context often makes me smile because he says, you can have all the gifts on record. You can speak all the languages of the world and other realms. You can let your body be burned. It doesn't matter if you don't have love. The greatest of these is this love. And there are many others. Paul's motivation here is he's saying, For you Philippians, I want your love to grow. Now, if you and I hear that uh, in a marriage relationship or a child, daughter, son, uh, you know, relationship, friendships, I need to love a person I don't like. Christy's bully. I don't want to like that person. I will love that person. We run to a, a good place, but not necessarily the right landing place just yet. So we need to see what Paul's argument here is. I want you to grow in love, but this is not just be a nicer person. Be a kinder person. Um, Love is connected to something. Here it's connected to real knowledge and all discernment. Real knowledge would be juxtaposed against false knowledge. So the world has a value system. The world, if they get anything right, it's by accident. Your value of the love of Christ is probably completely opposite to the world's value of what they love. This Texas Heartbeat. Bill, is a great example of if you love life or you love death. It is that simple. And if you love death, then you change language to assault life. And if you love life, you have the courage to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That child, that's a person. That's an infant. That's a baby. That's a helpless human being ready to be born. All that's needed is time and nourishment. And that Person will be born the world is always going to have a different view of this we are at odds with the world they with us discernment in the framework here is it only occurs in the bible here and those of you precept or BSFers, you like words that are, they call them hopoxlegomenos. They only occur once in the Bible. We get all excited. Woo! Uh, it's really just confusing is what it is because we like to see how the word's used elsewhere. When it only shows up one time, we go, why did the author use that? And we go on rabbit trails. It means to feel, to perceive, to have insight or experience. And so in Paul's framework, he's saying you need to have the right information and the ability to discern the right thing. John Walvert, I mentioned as we began the series, a very readable little tiny commentary he writes of this section. It is only as we comprehend the love of God toward us, unworthy as we are, that we can in turn love those who are imperfect. Let me read that one more time. It is only as we comprehend the love of God toward us, unworthy as we are, that we can in turn love those who are imperfect. That's, we could almost just stop there and go home. It's easy to love those that are lovable. It's easy to love those that love us. It's a whole different ball game to love people that are unlovable and difficult and obstinate and not as cool as we are. Unworthy as we are. That's what I call a $25 sentence. He continues, the love for which he is praying... Paul's praying, comes from the heart of God, who is omniscient, infinitely discerning. And he's referring back to real knowledge and discernment out of the verse. That's all he's doing is restating it. A God who is omniscient, infinitely discerning, and fully aware of all the deficiencies in his creatures, and yet is impelled to love us because he is a God of love. Such love cannot be static, but must abound. So when children give the wrong answer, you don't destroy them. You encourage them. When your husband or wife doesn't respond perfectly, you don't attack them at the jugular as much as you'd like to. You say, I'm imperfect too. And we're both in this together and love must abound. Look again at these three verses. Verse 9, and this I pray It's a prayer that your love may abound. Still more and more, in real knowledge and all discernment, omniscience and God's discerning wisdom, here's a purpose clause, so that you may approve of the things that are excellent, in order explanation, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of god number one that your love might abound number two to approve of the things that are excellent number one that your love may abound number two to approve of the things that are excellent now this is a discrimination of values the world values death over life the world values self over others the world values its own image over the image of god as I've often said, that God made us in his image and we're to worship him. Man's been making God in his own image ever since and trying to worship him or herself. And this whole thing has flipped on its head. Uh, to approve of the things that are excellent. The idea of approval here is to examine something carefully, to look at it critically, to test it. You young parents who have children in schools, whether it's private, public, uh, tutorial, homeschool, whatever, you need to teach them more than anything to have critical thinking and discerning abilities. What's, right, what's wrong? To differentiate, to know that choices have consequences. Okay, you make this choice, certain things are going to happen. Make that choice, things are going to happen. And all of us in life are going to learn the hard way. No person makes every choice the right way. Spiritual discernment is sorting out the good and bad. Spiritual discernment, the wisdom God gives us, the love we have for Christ is, it's really only A or B. There's not C-D-E-F-G. It's either this is right or it's not. Um, when we lived in Virginia, Cindy and I had a couple friend. Uh, they, he was a naval uh, graduate. Uh, the academy and went on to have a career in the Navy. And then a second career as a financial planner. And um, his name was Ed and we used to joke, you don't meet Ed, you have an encounter with Ed. Ed would get in your face and uh, invade your personal space and talk very loud volumes. And Ed led more people to Christ than anybody on the planet. If you know uh, of Naval men and women, you serve in the Navy, uh, military officers, They have the longest deployments typically. If you're on a ship, you might be gone six, nine months. If you're on a submarine, it can be six to nine months routinely. And so what happens is mom is left home to raise the children. Well, Ed and Dottie had three boys, and they're strapping. They're huge young men. And so Ed is a very indomitable military officer. You get the picture with Naval Academy grad, and this is the way you do things. And his wife was graceful and resolute never raised her voice, con- almost the opposite of Ed. And she raised those boys pretty much single-handedly. And they all turned out to be good, godly, and they're huge, strong guys, all three of them. And, you know, whenever you see a family like that and you go, oh, "That's just... Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, the cynic me. Like, all their kids turned out well. I'm a terrible father. Well, that's another issue for my confession sometime. But I was so enamored with these guys and I got to know one of them pretty well and I asked him one time about their mother because she was, she was graceful, didn't raise her voice solid believer resolute and uh, he said, Michael, lots of things I could tell you but one thing she told us all of our life was, boys, if you have to think about it twice, don't do it that's discerning wisdom that's real simple theology If there's something that checks you, you you don't do it. Now that's just a baseline parenting tool. All you young parents, write that down, memorize it, program, brainwash your kids with that ideology. If you gotta think about it twice, don't do it. Don't do it, because something's going on here. And the beauty of this is, if it comes around later and you rethink it, well it is okay to do it, fine. But if something stops you, call out the Holy Spirit, call it your own conscience, call it your parents' influence in teaching you, whatever you want to package it as. I don't care. Think about it twice and don't do it. That's a really good thumbnail way of saying what Paul's saying here. It's not just our conscience. It's illustrative of approving of the things that are excellent. It's illustrative of saying, I'm discriminating values. That's right and that's wrong. Examine them carefully. This week we released a podcast with Janet Parshall on In Context, and you may or may not follow In Context, that's fine, but if you want to listen to a podcast that will get you amped up and awaken your thinking, listen to Janet. She is amazing. And we talked at great length about being in a culture that no longer cares for what Christians believe and how Christians, once you get back on your heels, the next thing you know, well, certainly, I mean, we're talking about love. God's loving. Of course, he's loving. It doesn't really matter. That's your choice. That's your prerogative because God's love. It's not what we're saying to the world that matters, it's how it affects the believer's mindset that it doesn't matter. What was once sin is no longer sin. What was once evil is okay. What was once categorized as black and white, that's wrong and that's damnable is now your personal preference and I, I just, God, Jesus loves you. What a misrepresentation of the crucifixion. What a misrepresentation of the man, God, fully God, man, who died for your sins and mine. He didn't gloss over what we did. He died for what we've done. And we live in a culture that's lost its mind. And so now we need to be discerning. Number Three, to be sincere and blameless. Number one, that your love might abound. Number two, to approve the things that are excellent. And three, to be sincere and blameless. Without hidden motives, without pretense. Now, some of you have been in our Christian churches long enough, like I have, to have heard the story about the word sincerely, sine qua in Latin, in Latin. It means without wax. Any of you heard this beside me? Without wax. And the, the story was that a statue or a vase or whatever was cracked or, or damaged and you would fill it with wax. And like we do today with faux painting, you would faux repair it and you would sell it as a real deal, and then the first time it got hot or near heat or sunlight, the wax would go away. So the idea was, we're not, we're not selling you something defective or broken or trying to pass one dishonestly. is without wax. It's a great illustration. It's totally, probably wrong. <laughs> it has nothing to do with it. But what sincerely does mean, and in, in if you look at some of the etymology people that are a lot smarter than me, one of the uses is something judged by sunlight, which you can see where they would get the idea of without wax, being sincere, but judged by sunlight. So think more of a person uh, with a a white cloth, taking it out into the bright light of day to see. If you go into, some of you go into maybe have, buy clothes or pick out a dress, you want to see it in certain lights. And a lot of places that fit will actually have lights that will change so you can see what it would look like in in warm light and cool light. Uh, Some of you, anyone have a clothesline growing up that your mother put clothes on? Uh, My mother dried everything pretty much on clotheslines with clothespins and uh, she ironed outside in the Houston sun, uh, partly to work on her tan and partly so she could see the stains and spots because everything in those days was white. Everything was white, and it was all cotton, and she did the starch, and she could iron a shirt, looked better than a dry cleaner's. That's what she did. And I often think of her taking those out and putting them up in the broad daylight, and she could see things on them. That's what this is about. It's something judged by sunlight. Blameless is another term that we fumble with, because sometimes our English translations... They're not wrong or bad, it's just the, the way we use nomenclature, it doesn't always connect with what the scripture is saying. Here the word blameless sounds like the, you can't, you're unimpeachable. That's not an inaccurate term or definition, but the word here means causing somebody to stumble. So blameless thought about that way was, hey, I didn't cause that person to stumble, I'm blameless in that regard, and a bit of a sidebar, and this is often confused in Christian circles, there are two kinds of issues. There's giving an offense and causing someone to stumble. Giving an offense is very different than causing a person to stumble in the New Testament. To cause them to stumble is because of your or my behavior decisions they have entered into sin. And so now I'm culpable for that. I see someone do or behave or sanction something. Oh, so and so did it, so I can do it because so and so did it. That's what stumbling is about. Paul's saying here it's blameless and then it's applied to others have not tripped up because of me. Paul uses the term when he's speaking to Felix in Acts chapter 24. He's telling, it's one of the great times when he's giving his defense of the gospel in his personal life. And he he goes on this thing about his hopes in God, and he believes in the resurrection of the dead. It's a chilling passage. He says, I believe in a resurrection of the wicked and the righteous. So everybody's going to live forever, just somewhere. And then in verse 16 of Acts 24, in view of this, he writes, or Luke writes, I also do my best to maintain always, here it is, a blameless conscience, notice, before God and before men. This isn't just about the sins in my life that I'm dealing with God and asking for forgiveness and trying by his spirit to avoid doing again and again. This is about how people look at me. And when they saw Paul, who, by the way, is in jail, what did he do wrong Why is he in prison awaiting some meeting with the Caesar? Uh, I'm going to live a blameless way. Which is why he had favor with the Roman guard. Because he was unimpeachable. This is a different understanding of love, is it not? Well, the prayer builds upon what Christ has done. That our love might abound in Christ. Not you and I laboring this up. That your love will abound. Secondly, that you approve of the things that are excellent. Third, to be sincere and blameless. And finally, the fourth petition, to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. I would argue it's a summary statement of all that's preceded. You're going to be filled up with the righteousness note, which comes through Christ. This is one of the most obvious and hardest truths for Christians to understand. You and I cannot make our flesh better Disciplined, strong-willed, checklist, do-good, what was it? Goody-two-shoes people are not better Christians. You cannot make your flesh better. But by submitting to God's Word and God's Spirit and following what we know of the Word, you will. if you obey me, you love me, then in a way we will never fully understand Christ's Spirit transforms us. And the thing that you once loved that was sinful, you now loathe. The thing that once brought you great joy and thrill brings you guilt and shame, and you know it's wrong. And it's those subtleties we have to be on the lookout for, not being a better Christian by checking all these boxes. It's human nature, it's if then theology read my Bible every day, do my Bible study, I'm in precept, I'm in BSF, I'm in community Bible study, I'm doing whatever, I pray, I have a prayer list, I read my daily reading, I did my Boa prayer book, I'm a good Christian. No, you're not. You're a disciplined person. You've done some good things that had great value. But if the Spirit of God doesn't transform you and me, we are not transformed. That's a hard thing to understand, but that's what the Scripture is telling you and me. We're filled with the fullness of the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Christ Jesus. This transformed character by the power of the Spirit is an interesting thing to study and pray through and ask for God's help. When, when theology gets complicated, just stop and say, oh, I need help, Lord. I don't know what in the world this means. I need help. It's amazing how recalibrating that can be. Um, when you go to the airport, you remember airports? Airports are those places you go when you used to travel. Uh, you go to airport, there's a moving sidewalk. And moving sidewalks are a delight to watch, place to watch people. Um, because proficient travelers, they just don't even stop. And, they, you know, and the people that don't travel much or people that have too much, their check-on bags should be on three other cargo planes. Uh, they have a harder time getting on those sidewalks. Cindy and I have this theory. We call them OTS, Oblivious traveler syndrome they're unaware of their surroundings to you to signs and they're completely uh and we're like come on people and so you get on there and then the question is do you walk on the sidewalk or do you stand there with your bag and do you block people behind you this is a perfect perfectly bad illustration of walking in the spirit Jack Packer wrote a book called Keeping Step with the Spirit. And I always look for a way to explain this without being theologically wrong, but giving us some handles. When you get on that moving sidewalk, once you understand it, you walk and go faster. And when you get off, you're kind of disappointed it's over. Now, you can't hurry it up more than your walking pace. You can slow it down. And if you, you know, if you're a little, you know, uncomfortable, you can hurt yourself or others, right? Think of this as cooperating with the Spirit of God. You get on there and you're moving. Now standing still to me makes no point. Get out of my way. Why would you get on my moving sidewalk and block me from walking on my moving sidewalk? Right? Get out of my way. So the believer in Christ gets on there and moves. Um, I don't think we can hurry up our sanctification. I do think we can hinder it. Because there's certain things that time and life and maturity just take for God to use. Um, At this chapter of our lives, Cindy and I look back on our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and we look at them differently because we go, oh, what we didn't know. And I talk to a lot of my peer, and I go, do you think we could have ever learned the things we know now, then? And we all go, no, of course not. Of course not. What is it, too soon old, too late smart? <laughs> All of a sudden you get there and you go, well, if I cooperate with God's Spirit, I can be filled with the righteousness. John Walvert again, this is a holy life and a holy character manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. A holy life and a holy character so if I'm filled with the fruit of righteousness, I'm gonna do the right thing in the right way. I think it was Luther that says there's never a wrong time to do the right thing, something like that, roughly. A couple of lessons. They're obvious, they're simple. You've seen them before, you know them already. Number one, pray that your love grows. Not as the world defines these terms, as what Paul has defined for us, and I'll review some of that in a second. And secondly, ask and answer the question, who or whom am I loving? And we'll talk more about these both. Let's talk about the first one for a minute. How do I pray that my love grows? Well, look at the passage. It's characterized by this omniscience of God with excellence, with discernment, with sincerity, so forth and so on. So as I'm looking at how I'm living the Christian life, it's not how I feel, but am I wise? Am I leaning on God's wisdom? Am I discerning? Do I approve of the good thing? It's a very different way of talking about love, is it not? It's not how I feel about a situation. It's how I'm responding to what the Scripture, what God's Spirit says to you and me. And the result is to glorify God, not me. The result is to give Him praise, not give me praise. Who or whom am I loving? Um... You've all, it's a shopworn phrase, and we'll we'll talk about it when we get to Philippians chapter two a bit more, but uh, humility is not thinking of our, less of ourselves, thinking, yeah, it's thinking of other, I had this right so many times, it's so shopworn, not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less, you've heard that, right? So I'm not diminishing and flagellating myself emotionally. You're a worthless, terrible sinner. You're ornery. That's all true. That's not the point. The point is thinking about myself less. That's hard. That's hard. Apart from God's spirit. It's impossible. Um, looking at young moms today, as Cindy and I are around a lot of young moms, uh, one of our daughters and others. Um, number one, it's just exhausting. Uh, number two, it's Non-stop, time-consuming. Number three, it's a whole lot of fun. Number four, it's a big mess uh, and all points in between. And uh, we, we were of the age where you know, we were stay-at-home. Cindy was a stay-at-home mom. I know it's so politically incorrect to say it today. Throw rocks, I don't care. Um, that's what we called it. And now, you, you, it, it, I didn't work outside the home. Don't say that, you'll draw back a nub. You know what I mean? There's all sorts of things I can't fix anymore. She stayed home. And uh, then when they were at an older age, you went and got a career. A lot of you did that. Boy, those were exhausting years with four kids at home. Wore you out. Weren't there benefits? Uh, You got to teach them certain things. The light went on. They love you back. You have an argument between two kids, and you hear them settle it by themselves. And go, oh, I can die happy. (laughs) You hear them say things you've told them to one of their siblings. Go, praise God, they heard it. They come home from school with a sticker, your child was the best behaved, praise Jesus. And then when you get older, you forget all the bad things and you just love them. Um, You know, it's not quantifiable. And it's not just qualitative. Qualitative. There's got to be a quantity, there's got to be an environment that we're loving these children, but it's also the quality, right? You can care for them and clothe them and dress them and give them all the right toys and tools, but if you're not emotionally connected with them, you're not loving them, right? So think about that as Christ sacrificially loving you and me. He didn't care about the time. He didn't care about his inconvenience. My my mother had the smallest closet in the house. And in the the 50s, a stay-at-home mom was a noble thing. Cultures change, things right or wrong. But her identity was to be a wife and a mother, period. And probably some of your parents were the same way. My thing is right, I'm just making an observation. She lived to sacrifice. And so, when I talk about moms in this respect, I'm just saying it's a good illustration to say that's what love looked like. Others were first, less of myself, more about them. Was, there, was it wrong? Was it right? You can evaluate that all you want. Um, I know a lot of us that are glad our moms sacrificed, and a lot of us that are glad that our wives sacrificed. You see, I want my love to be smarter and more insightful. That's the NLT way to say this. I want my love to be smarter and more insightful. And it's not about making my flesh better. You and I, if we go out there tomorrow and say, I want to love better. Who do I love? How do I love him? i will be better at it. You're going to fail immediately. Well, you might last a day or two. Think about some of these just, just to provoke you. Do I love Jesus Christ? What a... What a Obvious, dumb question, Michael? Yeah, think about it for a while. Meditate on that question. Do you love Jesus Christ? And how would anybody know? How would you know? You see, I can love my wife. I can love my children. I can love my sons-in-law. I can love my grandkids. I can love you. I can figure that out. How do I love God? How do you love him? Well, one thing for sure we know he told us, if you love me, you will obey me. How does my love help or encourage others? How does my love reflect the person of Christ Jesus? Paul's in prison. And he says, I want to be blameless. I don't want anyone else to stumble because of my life. The theme is strikingly similar to a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I love that chapter. For so many reasons, because it's this above and beyond chapter about how the Corinthians, how, how what he did and what they did, it's such a sacrificial chapter, and it's sort of this above and beyond motif. And he talks about his giving financially; they're giving financially. But let me read it and notice the similarity to what we just read in Philippians one nine to eleven, chapter eight second corinthians verses seven and eight but just as you abound in everything same word as you abound to grow in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you they were the ones who influenced the corinthian believers to love god uses paul and his disciples to help the corinthians love the way jesus loves See to it that you abound. Same word again in this gracious work also. And here he's talking about financially again. I am not seeking this, I'm not speaking this as a command. I can't order you, you give. You give financially, you be more gracious, you be more loving. I can't command you to do that, he writes, but is proving there is an interesting term. Through the earnestness of others, there it is, same word, the sincerity. Of your love also. It's the, same, it's the same ideology he's teaching, ideas he's teaching here. That only as you understand the love of Christ compelling, Christ cannot but love. The love of Christ compels us as I pray, God, let my love grow. It's got to grow the way he wants me to love, not the way you and I define love. Um, when I was uh, in Texas, I met a man named Floyd Sharp, who became a mentor and a friend for 15 years with the Lord now. And he told me when he came to Christ in his late 30s, he was in Houston. He was a pharma, pharma, pharmacy salesman. In those days, pharmacists knocked on doors of doctors and they gave him samples and talked to the doctor about the latest, what it was, cardiology medications or arthritis medications or whatever. And that's what he did. And he worked for a big company and um, traveled and knocked on doors. And one of the doctors he visited in Houston said, you know, you're kind of a smart guy. You'd like my pastor come to my church. Floyd had not been to church in memory, had two children, married. And so the next Sunday he went to church basically as a sales farming. I'm going to keep marketing and working, you know, sewing and networking and so forth. So he goes to church. He lands the Bethel Independent Presbyterian Church in Houston, Texas, where Dr. Ed Bloom was the teaching elder at the time. First time he ever heard Dr. Ed Bloom speak, he trusted Christ right there in the pew. The next Sunday he went back. He said, Michael, the collection plate went by, and he goes, I reached for my wallet. And he goes, I surprised myself and my wife because I'd never given to anybody, not the Boy Scouts, not the kid that knocked at the door, not the Girl Scout cookies. I'd never given to anybody, but I wanted to give. And he said, I knew something changed. It's just illustrative of the love of Christ changing us. What we once thought was important and loved and nurtured and played with sinfully no longer has that same affect. Sure, it might draw and pull and tug at us, but the love of Christ should compel us. And we should abound in this love. Finally, Does my love identify me is the question I came away with this in my own study this week. Does it identify me as a disciple? Does it identify me as a person that loves Jesus Christ? Do I, in fact, want to grow and abound in love? And the verse I mentioned before, we'll read now in closing, John 13, 35. By this, all men, this is Jesus speaking, all men will know that you are my disciples If you have love for one another. That was true the day he spoke it to the 11 as true today. What is our country so crazy about right now? And if they look at a community of people that not only do they basically like each other, but they love each other. It will blow their categories. Because everybody hates everybody. Everybody's mad at everybody. Everybody's yelling at everybody. Everybody's screaming at everybody. Everybody's building their tribe, building their personality, building their, their influence. I love that word. I'm an influencer. I like that about as much as thought leader. I'm a thought leader. What does that mean? <laughs> Nothing new under the sun, I think Ecclesiastes said. Do you love one another? Can't, you can't drop it up in the flesh. You will fail. You ask God. Will you help me to love the way you love? That I'll look at things and I'll be able to discern right from wrong, good from bad. What you approve of, not what I approve of. And in your spirit and your words work in my life, I will love what you love. And Jesus said, if you have that kind of love, the world will look at you. Pretty simple. Pretty clear.